Our speaker tonight is Leon Cass. Dr. Cass teaches at the University of Chicago, both in the undergraduate college and in the Graduate Committee on Social Thought. He holds both a medical degree and a doctorate in biochemistry, but he has devoted the major part of his career to biomedical ethics, a field in which he is something of a founding father. At the University of Chicago, he has been founder and chairman of a degree program that ignores departmental boundaries to allow undergraduates to focus on fundamental texts and questions in a way that would not seem strange to Johnny's. That's not so strange since he was for a time a long while ago a St. John's tutor. For some time now, he's been studying the Hebrew Bible as a teaching about human nature. He's now completing a book on the education of the fathers as presented in the book of Genesis. His lecture tonight, a piece of that project, is entitled, The Humanist Dream, Babel, Then and Now. Please welcome Leon Cass. Thank you very much. Um, it's, uh, it's an honor and a treat to be back. The book of Genesis is largely an account of the beginnings of the people of Israel. Beginning with God's call of Abraham in chapter 12, it narrates the trials of the founders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as God himself directly leads one people to follow his chosen path. But before the coming of this new way, Genesis presents an account of human beginnings universally considered employing tales of men and women functioning largely on their own and left to their own devices. The last episode of that universal human story is the famous tale of the city and tower of Babel, presented economically in the first nine verses of the 11th chapter of Genesis. As everybody knows, God disrupts the building of the city, confounding the speech of the builders and scattering them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Here is the story, and I hope most of you at least have uh, the handout. The text is there if you'd like to follow. And all the earth was of one language and one speech. And as they journeyed about from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said, each man to his neighbor, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man were building. And the Lord said, behold, it is one people and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Come, let us go down and there confound their language, that they may not understand each man the language of his neighbor. So the Lord scattered them from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they ceased to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence 
did the Lord scatter them upon the face of all the earth. On first encountering the story prior to careful reflection, any reader who is not already committed to defending everything God does is likely to find the tale troubling. For the building of the city and the tower appears at first glance to be an innocent project, even a worthy one. It expresses powerful human impulses, at first towards safety and permanence, eventually toward full independence and self-sufficiency. And it is accomplished entirely by rational and peaceful means, forethought and planning, arts that transform the given world, and cooperative social arrangements made possible by common speech and uniform thoughts. Babel, the universal city, is a fulfillment of a recurrent human dream, a dream of humankind united, living together in peace and freedom, no longer at the mercy of an inhospitable or hostile nature, and enjoying a life no longer solitary, nasty, poor, brutish, and short. According to the story, however, God finds this humanist dream a nightmare. Taking strong exception to the city of man, he thwarts its completion by measures designed to make it permanently impossible. Why? Given that human beings want the city, but God does not, our first impulse is to think that the answer depends on knowing God's reasons or seeing things from his point of view. Of this, all we know for now is contained in God's remark, no doubt uttered with a negative judgment, quote, now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do, unquote. God, it seems, sees the likely success of the project but does not approve it. He does not approve of the prospect of unrestrained human powers exercised in support of unlimited imaginings and desires. He seems to be worried both about man's boundless capacity to dream up grand projects and even more about man's ability, sustained by unity of speech and purpose, to realize them. From God's point of view, the city of man is at best a form of idolatry and self-worship and at worst a great threat to the earth. But why should readers, and especially modern enlightened or wisdom-seeking, that is philosophical readers, take God's view of this matter? Should we not cherish the hopes of our fellows, those first dreamers of the humanist dream? After all, we are told, all mankind without exception thought the project right and good. Absent a meddlesome God, would there be any reason to disagree? And if a meddlesome God were truly absent, would there not be every reason to revive the humanist dream? If there is no city of God, the city of man is not only not idolatry, it becomes our own last best hope. The careful study of the biblical story suggests that this view is mistaken, that God's judgments and actions regarding Babel are entirely fitting and on grounds accessible to human reason. Pondering the building of Babel in the context of what precedes and follows may allow any wisdom-seeking reader to come to see it from God's point of view. From here, the talk is in six parts, the first part of which is called The City in Context. We must first locate the story of Babel in the larger context of human beginnings. The early chapters of Genesis take the reader vicariously through four alternative conditions of human life. 
First, simple innocence in the absence of human self-consciousness. Second, life without law, anarchy, based on an internalized knowledge of good and bad. Third, life under the primordial law, when man emerges from what later writers will call the state of nature. And fourth, the dispersion of peoples, each living under its own law or customs. Let us briefly revisit these human alternatives. First is the condition of simple innocence pictured in the Garden of Eden. Innocence is destroyed when human beings, their desires enlarged by newly used powers of mind, exercise their autonomy and take to themselves independent knowledge of good and bad. Judgmentally, judgmentally self-conscious, they immediately discover their nakedness and thus their shame and wounded pride, which they artfully attempt to cover over. This end of innocence is literally the expulsion into the real world where human beings live according to their own lights and judgments of good and bad without imposed law. In this second state, we encounter Eve's proud birth of Cain, Cain's sacrifice, wounded pride, jealousy, and murder of his brother, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, and their ill-fated interbreeding after Adam dies in the 10th generation, and the world degenerating into riotous and lewd behavior. The flood completes the dissolution of this anarchic world. The third state appears after the flood with Noah. Righteous and simple Noah, the first man born into the world after Adam dies, when God institutes a new order based on law and covenant. An externally imposed law, to begin with no murder, is now administered and enforced by human beings but with divine sanction against a world order guaranteed to be not hostile to human aspiration by God's covenant never again to destroy the earth. This new state of primitively lawful society was to have been transmitted universally from fathers to sons, but it was not successfully perpetuated even for one generation. Noah's drunkenness and the irreverent conduct of one of his sons made universal transmission impossible. Dispersion of peoples and election of one under the direct leadership of God thus becomes the next plan featuring the nation that begins with Abraham, a people that will be called to carry God's way as a light unto all the nations. One way to speak about this series of conditions is to say that God keeps trying new plans after the old ones fail, in many cases making concessions to unavoidable and undesirable human weaknesses, for example, in the permission to eat meat granted to Noah. But a better way, I think, is to say that by this means, we, the readers, learn that those other imaginable human possibilities, innocence, anarchy, universal perpetuation of law and covenant through natural lineage, quote, have been tried, unquote, and have failed, which is to say they are terrestrially impossible. We are educated to believe that the human spirit of righteousness is not strong enough to rule from within but needs outside instruction, legislation, and help. The story of the city and tower of Babel is the culmination of this sequence. It shows the impossibility of transmitting the right way of life through the universal, technological, secular city. The more immediate background for the builders of Babel is the flood. 
In this universal cataclysm, human beings encountered the full destructive force of brute nature. After the flood, God promised never again. But it is reasonable to surmise that the memory of the deluge weighs, weighed at least as heavily as the hearsay report of God's promise not to repeat it. God's first post-Diluvian command to Noah to spread out and fill the earth with people might have been a terrifying prospect under the circumstances. Babel's connection to the antecedent flood is in fact hinted at by the very last words of Genesis 10, the words immediately preceding the story of Babel. I quote, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations, and of these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood, unquote. Genesis 10, the story just before the story of Babel, is altogether another and gentler account of the division of mankind, answering in its way the questions, how came there to be many nations? How came there to be many tongues? The answer of Genesis 10 is genealogical. Beginning with the three sons of Noah, their descendants reflecting to some degree their own very different characters. Among the descendants of Ham, the irreverent son, we find one man who in this version is connected with Babel. Nimrod, whose name means rebelliousness, was the one who began to be a mighty man upon the earth. He was a powerful hunter in the face of God, and for this he became famous. And he was also the founder, presumably by conquest, of an empire of cities in the plain of Shinar, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. By means of a large kingdom, Nimrod attempts to overcome by force the division of humankind. We should not be too quick to blame him. For if what lies behind the human world is only chaos and instability, man must make his own order. Human ordering is the theme of the story of Babel. Part two and the longest part is called Rational Animal, Political Animal, Speech, and the City. And here I'll ask you to bear with me as I'm going to do a, an exegesis of at least part of the text. The humanist dream of Babel is rooted in logos. Speech and language, reason and the arts are the heart of the story. In keeping with its subject matter, the story of Babel is itself a wonderfully artful narrative and the words it uses are most carefully chosen. Poetic craft and linguistic subtlety are enlisted to sound an alarm about language and art. To take full advantage of the text, we must proceed very slowly, looking at every word with care. And all the earth was of one language and one speech. The story of Babel begins with all mankind united as a single harmonious group or as God later says, as one people. Indeed, the text accentuates the unity by exaggeration, identifying all mankind as all the earth. The project that human beings are about to undertake is the work not only of Nimrod and the line of Ham, it is a universal human project. This is the first clue that Babel is not just any city, but is the city, the paradigmatic or universal city representing a certain universal human aspiration. Of one language. The unity of the human race was linguistic or logical, 
not merely genealogical. This means more than sharing uniforms, sounds, and symbols, speaking, say, Aramaic rather than Greek. It means sharing the view of the world embedded in a language. It means sharing a common, common understanding of the world that any pure language implicitly contains. And because language also bespeaks the inner world of the speakers, sharing one language means also a common inner life with simple words ac accurately conveying the self-same imaginings, passions, and desires of every human being. To be of one language is to be of one mind about the most fundamental things. But where does this one language come from? It is a strictly human creation. It appears to come unaided directly from the human mind. As we learn from the Garden of Eden story, man's first creative and distinctively human activity is naming the animals. Whatever name man selected became each animal's name. Beginning with this innocuous activity, human reason gradually creates in speech a complete linguistic world layered over but distinct from the given natural world. This second shadow world, though it was invited by the articulated natural world, gains independence from it. The word is not the thing. True language may point to and reflect the given world, but colored by human perceptions, passions, and desires, language conveys less the world as it is, more the humanly constructed vision of that world. But the merely constructed character of language does not imply weakness. On the contrary, language, because it is a human creation, comes to hold greater sway with human beings than does God's original creation, especially when, as here, human beings come to take language for granted. The one language unity of humankind means that the humanly constructed reality of speech has become pervasive and, as it were, second nature. Of one speech. The humanist dream of Babel is predicated on the trustworthiness of language. Yet the immediate sequel to, quote, of one language, subtly hints that language and thus the human construal of the world might be less reliable than we are inclined to believe. The human beings were not only of one language, they were also of, quote, one speech. Almost as if the text were deliberately trying to deny the possibility of linguistic unity and clarity just asserted, the meaning of this little phrase is notoriously difficult to grasp. The Hebrew words are hard to translate because there is a grammatical paradox regarding number. The noun, dvarim, words, a plural, is modified by the generally singular adjective, one, echad, but it's here written as a plural, achadim. You've got the singular written as an impossible plural. A variety of interpretations have been offered. Few words implying simple thoughts and communications. Many words but one speech implying a single plan or single words read as a synonym for of one language. But we wonder whether this strange construction with the impossible plural of one might be a literary hint that the human being's confidence in their language was somewhat misplaced. 
It might suggest, in addition, that these people were confused about the being of the one and the many, and in particular about the existence and unity of the highest one. Such confusion might, in the end, jeopardize the apparent simplicity, singleness of purpose, common understanding, and intelligibility of their thought. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Though mankind was told after the flood to disperse and fill the earth, the human race chose rather to settle in one place, a fertile plain in the land of Shinar, that's the Euphrates Valley, that could accommodate and sustain them all. A fertile plain very likely suggests agriculture, not hunting and gathering. Agriculture suggests settlement rather than wandering, and also forethought, fences, and the arts. It also requires a keen dependence on heaven, on sun and rain, a matter to which we shall return. And they said, each man to his neighbor, come, let us make bricks. As the story more than hinted from the start, the project for the building of the city depends on human speech. And they said, but whereas human speech has previously been used in the text for a variety of other purposes, naming, self-naming, questioning authority, shifting blame, denying guilt, etc., speech is here used by human beings to exhort to action and to enunciate a project of making for the first time in Genesis. Come or go to means prepare yourself, get ready to join in our mutual plan. Each man thus roused his neighbor to the joint venture, let us make. Speech is the herald of craft. Make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Far from the mountains where stones could be had, the men found no ready-made blocks for building, so they started by making their own materials from scratch. This is the Bible's first mention of bricks. The very idea of bricks is itself an invention, a creative act of the resourceful mind. And how and from what does one make bricks? From the ground, from the moistened dust of the ground by means of fire. Fire is universally the symbol of the arts and crafts and of technology. Through the controlled use of fire's transforming power, human beings set about to alter the world, presumably because, as it is, it is insufficient for human need. Imitating God's creation of man out of the dust of the ground, the human race begins its own project of creation by warming and transforming portions of the earth. And they said, come let us build for us a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. Like so much of modern technology, the means proceed and generate their own ends. Now we have bricks. What can we make with them? Bricks now in hand, the creative imagination proceeds to a new plane. It projects a city with a tower. The meaning of the city is inextricably linked with the meaning and presence of the tower, but also the meaning of the tower is inextricably linked with the nature and meaning of the city. The Hebrew word for city, ear, comes from a root meaning to watch or to wake. The city, the place of wakeful watch, 
from which men alertly look out beyond for threats to their security. Before Babel, there are only two references to cities. Cain, after killing his brother Abel, is told by God that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer. But Cain settles in the land of Nod and presumably out of fear builds there a city, a refuge once he has a family. And he names that city for his firstborn, Enoch. The line of Cain, by the way, includes the founders of the arts and crafts implicit in civilization. After the flood, there is also a brief mention of the great city of the Assyrians, Nineveh, whose wickedness Jonah will much later be sent to reprove. A little later in Genesis, we will learn about the supremely wicked Canaanite city of Sodom, destroyed by God. Whatever the city means, at least in the beginning of the Bible, it seems to be linked, at least in these other cases, with violence, lewdness, and corruption but none of these features appear tied to the city of Babel, at least not yet, which proceeds through peaceful cooperation under the rule of reason. The city, every city, is a thoroughly human institution with settled place and defined boundaries whose internal plan and visible structures all manifest the presence of human reason and artfulness. The city affirms man's efforts to provide for his own safety and needs strictly on his own. Standing up against the given world, it affirms man's ability to control and master the given world, at least to some extent. Although the city stands as a memorial to the ingenuity of those who have gone before, at any given moment the city is an expression of the human effort at self-sufficiency, at satisfying by human needs alone all of the needs and wants of human life. Born in need, the human city, by meeting and more than meeting the needs of its builders, proudly celebrates the powers of human reason. Perhaps the most celebrated passage on the origin and nature of the city is provided by Aristotle near the beginning of the politics. I quote selectively, the association constituted in accordance with nature for everyday needs is the household. The first association made out of many households for the sake of needs which are not only daily is the village. And the association made out of several villages and complete is the polis, having already, so to speak, reached the limit of full self-sufficiency. That is, it comes into being for the sake of living, but it is for the sake of living well." Unquote. This argument that roots the city in human need and defines it by self-sufficiency is supported by a second argument, which roots the city in human speech. The city, the ground of self-sufficiency, is the natural home of human beings also because it is the embodiment of and stage for human speech and reason. Because men have speech, they live in cities, not just in herds or swarms. I quote again, man is by nature a polis animal more than any bee or any herding animal. For man alone among the animals has logos, thoughtful speech or reason. But logos is for making clear the advantageous and the harmful, and so also the just and the unjust. For this is special to men alone in relation to the other animals, having alone the awareness of good and bad, just and unjust, and the rest. And a community of these things makes a household and a polis." Unquote. Speaking animal, rational animal, artful animal, political animal, 
animal knowing good and bad, and opining about the just and the unjust. It is all one package. Man becomes truly human only when he lives in a polis, providing for himself and ruling himself by his own light of reason through speech and shared opinions about good and bad, just and unjust. Though the biblical author almost certainly did not read Aristotle's politics, he seems to share a similar view of the meaning of the city, though not of its goodness. Precisely what Aristotle celebrates, Genesis views with suspicion. And what of the tower? How is this connected with the meaning of the city? The context of the flood suggests a connection with safety. The tower is an artificial high ground providing refuge against future floods and a watchtower for the plain. It is even imaginable that it might be intended as a pillar to hold up heaven lest it crack open another time. These suggestions, however plausible, do not nearly go far enough. To this one, we must add what we know of the historical city of Babylon and its tower, the famous ziggurat at Temenanki in the temple of Marduk. Marduk was the chief god of Babylon. Originally, he seems to have been a god of thunderstorms, but according to the epic poem Enuma Elish, he rose to preeminence after conquering the monster of primeval chaos to become, quote, lord of the gods of heaven and earth, the supreme ruler of all nature, responsible, among other things, for the motions of the stars and for fertility and vegetation. The name of the tower at Temenanki in Sumerian means house of the foundation of heaven and earth. The tower, part of the city's temple, is a human effort to link up heaven and earth. According to some accounts, the Babylonian tower was intended to pave a way for a divine entrance into the city. Yet even granting such an aspiration, the project is not unambiguously pious. For unless the god or gods explicitly command such a gesture, the tower, any such conduit, must be seen as a presumptuous attempt to control or appropriate the divine, to bring the cosmic origins down into one's own midst, to encompass the divine within one's own constructions. What appears at first glance as submission is in fact at least partly an expression of pride. But the ziggurats of Babylon probably had more straightforward and even straightforwardly rational interests in heaven. Heaven understood quite literally as the place of the sun, moon, and stars, and as the source of rain. Babylon was the place where human beings first began to study the stars and to plot and measure their courses. The towers would almost certainly have been the favored sites for astronomical observation. In Babylonia, astronomical observation was undertaken not for the restful and disinterested contemplation celebrated by the Greek philosophers, but for an apprehensive yet patient scrutiny and measurement of the motions of the heavenly bodies in the service of calculation, prediction, and control, and not least regarding the coming of rain. The Babylonian priests ruled the city on the basis of their knowledge and divination regarding heaven. The house of the foundation of heaven and earth thus sought to link the city with the cosmos and to bring the city into line with the heavenly powers that be, or perhaps conversely, to bring the powers that be 
and to line with the goals of the city. Not every human city has a ziggurat, but every human city orients itself on the basis of some intuition about the cosmic whole. Without some instruction to the contrary, human beings will eventually be inclined to look up to nature and especially to the heavens, for the heavens are the home of those visible powers that matter so much to the life of the city, especially as the city rests on agriculture. In this respect, too, the city of Babel is a natural city, a city oriented toward cosmic nature, even as it seeks to predict and to a, to a degree control nature here on earth. And let us make for us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth, of all the earth. The city is a mixture of pride and fear. Its origins quite likely are in fear. This immediately post-Diluvian population has better reason than most to know and fear nature's wildness and inhospitality and to shrink from standing unarmed and dispersed before the powers that be. These men find strength in numbers and unification and in their ability cooperatively to craft, the, craft a home in the midst of an indifferent, not to say hostile world. But the beginnings in fear gradually give rise to pride. Human craft is its foundation. Beginning low and working from the ground up, men make bricks from the dust of the earth by the transforming power of fire. Lowly materials in hand, their ambition soars as they conceive next to build a city and a tower with its top in heaven. The city and tower express the human conquest of necessity, human self-sufficiency, and independence. Above all, the skyscraping tower, whatever its explicit purpose, stands proudly as a monumental achievement of proud builders to serve their everlasting glory. The anticipatory vault of the builders, let us make us a name, shows the towering pride, though the fear of dispersion, lest we be scattered abroad, has not been altogether extinguished. Now what is this wish to make us a name? The verb to make, asa, has previously been used only by God, either to announce his own makings or to command Noah's building of the ark, or once by the text to report God's makings of coats of skins. The word name hitherto used in relation to particular names, acquires here a new sense for the first time in Genesis. Adam had named the animals, named himself as, and the woman as woman and man, Isha and Ish, and later renamed the woman Eve, honoring her powers as the mother of all life. People give and receive names that may be significant. Noah, for example, the firstborn after, the firstborn, the first human born after the death of Adam, gets a name that means both comfort and lament. Fame and renown are sought, and some men even boast of their deeds. For example, Lamach, who is the Bible's first poet and sings of his own heroism. But the aspiration to make a name, to make a name, goes beyond the desires to give oneself a name or even to gain a name, fame and glory for great success. To make a name for oneself is most radically to make that which requires a name. To make a new name for oneself is to remake the meaning of one's life, 
so that it deserves and requires a new name. To change the meaning of human being is to remake the content and character of human life. And the city, fully understood, achieves precisely that. Through technology, through division of labor, through new modes of interdependence and rule, and through laws, customs, and mores, the city radically transforms its inhabitants. At once makers and made, the founders of Babel aspire to nothing less than self-recreation through the arts and crafts, customs, and mores of their city. The mental construction of a second world through language and the practical reconstruction of the first world through technology together accomplish man's reconstruction of his own being. The children of man remake themselves and thus their name in every respect taking the place of God. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man were building. At its midpoint, the story of Babel shifts from the human point of view to God's. But in making the shift, the text identifies the builders of the city as the children of man or the children of Adam. This could be a simple euphemism for human beings, sons of man playing at being God. But it also connects the protagonists of this last pre-Abrahamic story with their oldest ancestor, the first or paradigmatic man, Adam. The term children of Adam assimilates the meaning of the project of Babel to the first activities of the first man. Not only his naming of the animals, but his project of appropriating autonomous knowledge of good and bad against instruction. Here, as in the Garden of Eden, men act in disobedience to definite commands. Adam to the specific prohibition about the tree of knowledge, the builders of the tower to the post-Diluvian command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The comparison of the two acts is apt, for in both cases, the very deed means disobedience. In Adam's case, autonomy, choosing for yourself, is the opposite of obedience. In the builder's case, independent self-recreation, making yourself, is the opposite of obedient dependence in relation to God or anything else. The road from Adam to the builders of the city is straight and true. Civilization suffers perhaps when compared with the innocence and contentment of Eden. But when human beings come face to face with hostile nature or hostile men in the state of nature, the city appears as a remedy and the universal city a dream of deliverance, peace, and prosperity. In Babel, the universal city with its own uniform laws, beliefs, truths, customs, and laws, the dream of the city holds full sway in the hearts and minds of its inhabitants. Protected by its walls, warmed and comforted in its habitats, and ruled by its teachings, the children of Adam, now men of the city, neither know nor seek to know anything beyond. Contentment reigns, or so it does seem. Part three is called Unity as Estrangement. The sections are from now on shorter. Unity as Estrangement, the failings of success. Can such a project succeed? 
Can such a city, if successfully founded, long endure? Even leaving God's judgment and intervention out of consideration for the time being, can the humanist city succeed? There is some reason to be doubtful. For one thing, the goal of reaching heaven with the tower is impossible. That the Lord had to come down to see what the men had done is in part a wry comment on the gap between their aspiration and their deed. For, an, for another, the materials used by the men were poor substitutes, brick for stones, slime for mortar, and were unlikely to secure the desired permanence. More fundamentally, the unity of mind that inspired the project of the city could hardly be expected to survive the division of labor that brought the city into being. The oneness of human life would very likely be replaced by the many ways of life as masons and carpenters, farmers and metal workers acquired different and competing interests. Yet God's single comment would seem to imply that the project would, or at least could, succeed as conceived. Quote, Behold, it is one people, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. God strongly suggests that the city is feasible. Its failings, if any, are intellectual or moral or spiritual, not practical. They are the failings of success. What might these failings be? The first and most obvious is the matter of piety. What do the men revere? To what do they look up? At first, they may look up quite literally to the heavens, to the powers that be, the sun, the moon, the stars. But implicit in the attempt to know, exploit, and control these powers through calculation, divination, and perhaps sacrifices is their belief in their own superiority. The aspiration to reach heaven is in fact, is in fact the desire to bring heaven into town, either to control it or more radically to efface altogether the distinction between, between the human and the natural or divine. In the end, the men will revere nothing and will look up to nothing, not of their own making, to nothing beyond, their, beyond or outside themselves, in part because they will see no eternal horizon. Content with and confined within the cave, they will forget about the truly enduring realm beyond. This charge against the city is not peculiarly biblical, as the allusion to the platonic allegory of the cave reminds us. In comparing our lives to those of men enchained in caves, Socrates implies that it is the Promethean gift of fire and the enchantment of the arts that hold men unwittingly enslaved. Warmed by the comforts of civilization and charmed by the familiar opinions produced by poets and politicians, the citizens are blind to the world beyond the city. Mistaking their crafted world for the whole, men live as cave dwellers, ignorant of, the true of their true standing in the world and their absolute dependence on powers not of their making and beyond their control. The city that does not look beyond itself to the truly transcendent realm cannot be a home for what is best in the human soul. Second among the failings is that the men refuse to look not only up, but down. They seem willfully to forget and deny their own mortality. Unlike Cain, who named his city for his son, the men of Babel want a name for themselves, here and now, and give no thought for their offspring. Rational but proudly unreasonable, 
these self-made makers forget their animality and the need for procreation. Mind and craft, they implicitly believe, can thoroughly triumph over necessity and mortality. Third are several failings regarding the crucial matter of standards. In their act of total self-creation, self there could be no separate and independent, that is, non-man-made standards to guide the self-making or by means of which to judge it good. The men, unlike God in his creation, will be unable to see that all that they had done is good. They could, of course, see if the buildings as built conformed to their own linguistic blueprint, but they could not judge its goodness in any other sense. Even more important, there could be no moral and political standards sufficient for governing civic life and of guiding the, power, guiding the proper use and power of technique. Power and technique are ethically neutral. They can be used both justly and unjustly. Worse, technical prowess, precisely because of its transformative power, creates the illusion that one can do without justice and morality. I remind you that according to Aeschylus, the gifts of Prometheus, the gifts which included fire and the arts, did not include justice and morality, and his philanthropy was incomplete. The omnicompetent city lacking in justice is a menace, both to itself and to the world. Even assuming that the inhabitants wish to be just, where will the builders of Babel find any knowledge of justice, or indeed of any moral or political principle or standard? Perhaps you will say they will look up to the heavens, but looking up to the heavens for moral guidance cannot succeed. The heavens may, as the psalmist says, reveal the glory of God, but they are absolutely mute on the subjects of righteousness and judgment. One can deduce absolutely nothing moral even from the fullest understanding of astronomy and cosmology. Not even the basic prohibitions against cannibalism, incest, murder, and adultery constitutive for all decent human communities can be supported by or deduced from the natural world. Perhaps this is part of the reason why the Bible, devoted to instruction in righteousness and holiness, begins by denying the divinity of everything we see around us and especially of the heavens. From the point of view of righteousness, indeed for all ethical and political purposes, cosmic gods are about as useful as no gods at all. The intelligentsia and the astrologer priests of Babel know perfectly well the moral silence of the cosmic gods, but they are not without their resources. The builders can build whatever is wanted. They will accord accordingly construct their own standards of right and good. But by this device, they ultimately degrade the people they mean to serve. For if right and good are themselves mere human creations, if they have no independent meaning, justice loses all claim upon the soul. The natural longings for the right, the noble, or the good that might arise in human beings could only be treated with contempt. The soul would be fed instead with artificial and arbitrary substitutes cast forth by the human makers of values. And unlike the shadows or images cast by the poets in Plato's cave, these artifacts of the just or the noble could bear no image relation to some genuine original toward which they point. Fourth among the failings is that all speech loses its power to reveal the world. Carrying only its humanly constructed meanings, 
language which was to begin with a self-consciously imperfect attempt to mirror and capture being, becomes when taken for granted a hermetically sealed shadow world cut off from what is real. To be sure, speech can still express human intention and serve practical purposes. One can still say, come, let us build and pass the hammer. But speech can no longer be used for inquiry, for genuine thought, for seeking after what is. When the units of intelligibility conveyed in speech have no independent being, when words have no power to reveal the things that truly are, then speech becomes only self-referential and finally unintelligible. Even the name one makes for oneself means nothing. Finally, and perhaps the worst failing of all, there is no possibility in such a city of discovering all of these other failings. The much prized fact of unity, embodied especially in a unique but created truth believed by all, precludes the possibility of discovering that one might be in error. The one uncontested way does not even admit of the distinction between truth and error. Self-examination, no less than self-criticism, would be impossible. There could be no Socrates who knew that he did not know. With everyone given over to the one common way, there would be mass identity and mass consciousness, but no private identity or true self-consciousness. There would be shoulder to shoulder, but no real face to face. Unity and homogeneity in self-creation are compatible with material prosperity, but they are a prescription for mindless alienation from the world, from one's fellows, and from one's own soul. Thus, the unified project for mastery begins by presupposing a partial estrangement of human beings from the world which it hopes to overcome. Yet in the end, the project for mastery, if successful, means the complete and permanent estrangement from what is real. Ironically, the proposed remedy makes the disease total and totally incurable. The self-sufficient and independent city of man means full estrangement and spiritual death for all its inhabitants. One must thus reconsider the earlier judgment that the project of the builders could in fact succeed as planned. Over the long haul, could mutual understanding survive or cooperation flourish in the presence of spiritual, moral, and intellectual decay? Would not the meaninglessness of speech eventually foster all by itself the confusion that is Babel? Does God intervene, in other words, only to push matters quickly to their logical conclusion, to make manifest all at once what was implicitly fated and fatal in the project from the start? Part four, the blessings of multiplicity, failure as cure. People are often best chastised and instructed by showing them vividly the previously hidden meaning of what they thought they wanted. For example, Midas's wish for the golden touch or Achilles' wish for glory. In the Babel story, God's intervention would serve vividly to indicate the chaos, confusion, and alienation that are the inevitable consequences, or better, the intrinsic meaning of any all-too-human prideful attempt at self-recreation. This is admittedly an unconventional way of reading the Bible, and the suggestion that God is just a workman who hastens what is necessary does not square neatly with the text. For if failure were both inevitable and desirable, 
Why did not God just bide his time and allow the moral lesson to teach itself? And why does he speak as if the venture might succeed? In fact, it is only God's intervention that could prove that failure was inevitable and permanently so. Spontaneous failure happening later in the ordinary course of things might be perceived as an accident, avoidable by another and better attempt. When we remember that the story is told mainly for the edification of its readers, we who are ever tempted by the, universe, by the humanist dream of the universal city feel the power of hearing God's judgment and seeing his will behind its actual demise. We are moved to see that the highest principle of being cannot support, in other words, brings down any human project that knows it not. God's punishment fits the crime. It opposes precisely each of the failings of the city by thwarting the plan to build it. The punishment not only fits the crime, it is also a gift to treat and rehabilitate the criminal. Failure is offered as cure. Though he may be troubled by man's impending technological power, God's, re God's remarks focus on the problem of human unity and human language. It is because it is one people and because they all have one language that nothing will be restrained from them. Human unity depends on linguistic unity. The trouble lies, to repeat, not in the mere fact that all human beings speak a particular language, say Sumerian, but in the fact that the human, unified human language stands for and bespeaks merely a humanly constructed vision of the world. The trouble with Babel is, at bottom, the trouble with language and the complacency it tends to produce. Accordingly, confusion of speech is the cornerstone of God's remedial intervention. He does not tear down the tower or the city walls. He chooses instead to go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's language. Misunderstanding and non-understanding make further cooperation on the project impossible and the men leave off building the city. Dispersion following the confounding of speech leads to the emergence of separate nations with separate tongues and separate ways with the near certain prospect of difference, opposition, and the danger of war. It is easy to see how linguistic and cultural multiplicity, contention, and the threat of destruction through war fit as remedies of opposition, the aspirations to unity, harmony, and prideful self-sufficiency on which the city is built. But they also serve to remedy the failings of idolatry, the denial of mortality, the lack of standards, the divorce of speech from being, the lack of self-examination, and in some, the full estrangement of man. In every case, it is negativity that fits the punishment to the crime. Failure or opposition is the heart of the remedy, or at least provides its beginnings. Consider, the emergence of multiple nations with their divergent customs and competing interests challenges the view of human self-sufficiency. Each nation by its very existence testifies against the godlike status of every other. The rivalries that spring up are in part both the result and the cause of the affronts to national self-esteem that such otherness necessarily implies. The prospect of war and even more its actual horrors prevent forgetfulness of mortality, vulnerability, and insufficiency. Such times of crises are often times 
that open men most to think about the eternal and the divine. I remind you of Prince Andrew at Austerlitz. Awareness of the multiplicity of human ways is also the necessary precondition for the active search for the better or best way. Discovering the partiality of one's own truths and standards invites the active search for truths and standards beyond one's making. Opposition is the key to the discovery of the distinction between truth and error, appearance and reality, convention and nature, between that which is said to be or appears to be and that which truly is independent of all such saying or seeming. And even in relations between nations, the awareness of misunderstanding is the possible beginning of the search for genuine understanding based upon recognizing the similar aspiration of the other. Such an understanding is admittedly hard to attain in the face of mistrust and genuine conflicts of interest, but it would be an understanding much deeper than the factitious homogeneity and agreement created out of nothing. In all of these cases, failure and want and their recognition as failure and want are the seeds of the human aspiration to be and do better. The self-content have no aspirations and longings. The self-content are closed to the high. This is not the first time that the Bible has pointed out a difficulty with unity and single-mindedness. After man was created and set in the Garden of Eden, we recall, God observes that it is not good for the man to be alone. Though it is common and appropriate to think that alone means lonely or in need of assistance, that is, that it is a badge of weakness, alone can also mean self-sufficient or independent, a sign of apparent strength. Why might a philanthropic God find fault with such apparent human strength? Perhaps because the perfect man, because he was alone, could not know himself to be perfect, indeed could not know himself at all. Or more likely, perhaps the original independent man, though he dwelt in the Lord's garden, had no real awareness of the presence of God. The coming of the woman first awakens man's self-awareness, and the result of their transgression not only heightens their moral self-consciousness, but brings them to their first awareness of God. Only after they discover their own insufficiency and dependence implicit in their nakedness do they for the first time, quote, hear the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, unquote. Only in discovering the distance between ourselves and the eternal, between ourselves and the truly self-sufficient, can human beings orient themselves toward that which is genuinely highest. God's dispersion of the nations after Babel is the political analog to the creation of woman. Instituting otherness and opposition, it is the necessary condition for national self-awareness and the possibility of a politics that will hear and hearken to the voice of what is eternal, true, and good. Part five, away from Babel, a preview of the new way. The story of Babel ends abruptly with the scattering of peoples across the face of the earth. The next story, the call of Abraham, begins even more abruptly, quote, and the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto the land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great 
I will make thy name great, and be thou a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and him that curses thee will I, will I curse. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram went. Why does God choose Abram? Why does Abram go? The text is utterly silent on these matters, perhaps in order not to distract us from the overwhelming facts that God did choose him and that Abram, without a word, got up and went. But what if the lessons of Babel have something to do with the election of Abraham? Could the text, by juxtaposing the two stories, be suggesting that an understanding of the beginning of Abraham is linked to an understanding of Babel? Is there a logical and moral connection, not necessarily a historical or empirical one? We are encouraged to consider this possibility because of the literary structure of the text itself. Between Babel and the call of Abraham, Genesis gives us the single line of descent of the ten generations leading from Shem to Abram, tying the tale of the dispersion to the tale of the election. With the lesson of Babel behind him, the reader is ready to hear the call of Abraham. Is it also possible that with Babel literally behind him, someone in the line from Shem to Abraham was ready to hear the call of God? The most obvious negative connection between Babel and the new way has already been made. The universal city of self-made men will not be a pious, moderate, just, thoughtful, or dignified home for human life, notwithstanding its ability to improve man's material conditions through technology. To have discovered the moral and political insufficiency of human artfulness opens one to the possibility of something beyond artfulness, to something real and truly satisfying. Again, this is not a peculiarly biblical point, but a human one. According to Plato's Republic, the discovery that one's life is in the grip of shadows casts by the artifacts of poets and other opinion makers liberates the prisoners in Socrates' cave to discover and pursue a world of incredible splendor beyond the cave. But since Abram is not Socrates and biblical fear of the Lord is not philosophy, perhaps there are some specific details in the generations of Shem that help us understand the special path that Abram took against the background of the special cave that was Babel. The name of the head of the line, Shem, means name the same as the word used in the Babel story to make us a name. Shem had gained a name for himself, not by pursuing it proudly, but rather for his leadership in the pious covering of his father Noah's nakedness. The arch ancestor of Abram is pious, refusing to look directly upon his natural origins. He looked away from nature in the direction of the as yet unpromulgated law to honor father and mother. Such a one is fit for the familial task of transmission. The inviolability, not to say sanctity, of family life will turn out to be crucial to God's new way. But the lineage of Abraham becomes truly interesting with Terach, Abraham's father. Terach mysteriously and on his own leaves his family home in Ur of the Chaldees and sets forth with Abraham, Lot, and Sarah to go to the land of Canaan. Chaldees is a biblical synonym for the Babylonians. And Ur, though not Babylon itself, was a Babylonian city, historically a center of moon worship, as was Haran, the city on the way to Canaan, where Terach unaccountably stopped. Abram will continue and complete the migration of his father from Babylonia to Canaan, but in obedience to God's command. 
Like his father, Abram too is a refugee from Babylon, from the land of the worship of the heavens and the heavenly bodies. He also therefore becomes a man without a home, without a city, without roots, and without the gods of his place of origin. Abram, in other words, is the rootless, homeless, godless son of a wanderer or radical, one who has grown out of, but who has outgrown and rejected the Babylonian ways and gods. Two more things we know about Abram. He's married to a beautiful woman, Sarah, and he is still childless at age 75 when God calls for Sarah is barren. In his circumstances, Abram is as far as possible from the self-satisfied and, and secure condition of the builders of Babel. He has no gods, he has no city, he has no children, he has no settled ways, he is discontent, yet he is not despairing. He is capable of loving a beautiful woman even though she is barren. Almost certainly a man of longing, he longs for roots, land, home, settled ways, children, for something great and for the divine. About the divine, perhaps he has learned something important, albeit negatively, as a result of his experience of the Babylonian way. Abram, I'm speculating, has seen through the worship of heaven. How this might have happened is, of course, pure speculation. But is it not conceivable that on the basis of his own study of the stars, Abram intuited that the visible stars could not themselves be gods, precisely because, though they are many, they move in such an ordered whole? Could Abram have intuited that there must be an in invisible, single, intelligent source behind the visible, many, but silent heavenly bodies moving dumbly, yet in intelligible ways? Is this perhaps what is behind the rabbinic legends that Abram smashed his father's idols, having become persuaded of monotheism on philosophical grounds, even before God spoke to him directly? Could Abram have figured out that the truth cannot be one humanist city with many or no gods, but many nations in search of the one God? God calls Abram with a command and with a promise. The promise answers Abram's longings for land, seed, and a great name. Abram goes not because he knows exactly who it is that is calling him. Only later does God identify himself to Abram, and then only partially as God Almighty, El Shaddai in chapter 17. Abram goes not only because he wants the promise, but because he has at least two reasons to believe that the speaker just might be a God indeed, and one able to deliver. First of all, this speaker in fact speaks. That is, this invisible being is itself clearly intelligent. Second, and more important, the voice addresses him not only personally, but knowingly and with concern. Marvelously, from Abraham's point of view, the speaker has seen directly into Abraham's heart, for the promises that are made respond to Abraham's deepest longings. Nothing revered in Babylon could speak or know what men want. Abram completes the rejection of Babel and heads off to found God's new way. Part six, Babel now, very short. Did the failure of Babel provide the cure? Has the new way succeeded? 
The walk that Abram took led ultimately to biblical religion, which by anyone's account is a major source and strength of Western civilization. Yet standing where we stand at the start of the 20th century, more than 3,700 years later, it is far from clear that the proliferation of opposing nations is a boon to the race. Mankind as a whole is not obviously more reverent, just, and thoughtful. And internally, the West often seems tired. We appear to have lost our striving for what is highest. God has not spoken to us in a long time. The causes of our malaise are numerous and complicated, but one of them is too frequently overlooked. The humanist project of Babel has been making a comeback. Ever since the beginning of the 17th century, when men like Bacon and Descartes called mankind to the conquest of nature for the relief of man's estate, the cosmopolitan dream of the city of man has guided many of the best minds and hearts throughout the world. Science and technology are again in the ascendancy, defying political boundaries and route to a projected human empire over nature. God, if I may be forgiven for saying so, seems to have forgotten about the possibility of a new universal language that could emerge and change everything, the language of symbolic mathematics and its offspring, mathematical physics. It is algebra that all men understand without disagreement. It's Cartesian analytic geometry that enables the mind once again mentally to homogenize the entire world, to turn it into stuff for our manipulations. It is the language of Cartesian mathematics and method that has brought Babel back from oblivion. Whether we think of the heavenly city of the philosophes or the post-historical age toward which Marxism pointed, or more concretely, the imposing building of the United Nations that stands today in America's first city, or whether we look at the World Wide Web and its Microsoft Word, or the globalized economy, or the spread of the postmodern claim that all truth is of human creation, we see everywhere evidence of the revived Babylonian vision. What are we now to think? Can our new Babel succeed? And can it escape? Has it escaped the failings of success of its ancient prototype? What, for example, will it revere? Will its makers and its beneficiaries be hospitable to procreation and child-rearing? Can it find genuine principles of justice and other non-artificial standards for human conduct? Will it be self-critical? Can it really overcome our estrangement, alienation, and despair? Anyone who reads the newspapers has grave reasons for doubt. The city is back, and so do is Sodom, babbling and dissipating away. Perhaps we ought to see the dream of Babel today once again, from God's point of view. Thank you very much.